You're listening to WNHHLP, 103.5 FM New Haven, streaming live at www.newhavenindependent.org and broadcasting live from our offices on Elm Street. This is another episode of Kika's Corner with Kika Matos. Mi gente, hello and welcome to Kika's Corner. My name is Kika Matos and I am your host. The goal for this show is to focus on interesting topics and people, social justice issues, and maybe, maybe a scandal or two, but always, 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 whatever we talk about will always have a New Haven edge. Today, we're going to talk about two really critical issues facing New Haven right now. Um, For the first half hour of the show, we're going to focus on policing in New Haven. And my guest for that portion of the show is one of the country's fiercest advocates on criminal justice and policing issues, Barbara Fair. And for the second half of the show, we're going to talk about Calhoun College and the community and the student-led efforts that have uh, uh, been pushing for Yale University to rename the college. We're going to be joined by Patricia Kane, who is a New Haven resident and was Corey Menefee's lawyer. As you may recall, uh, Mr. Menefee was a Yale Dining Hall employee who was arrested and charged uh, this last summer with a felony for knocking down a stained glass window depicting happy slaves picking cotton. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to have you here. Always happy to see you. Um, Barbara, you've been on the front lines of advocacy efforts around criminal justice and policing issues for decades. Uh, First, you created People Against Injustice, which focused on criminal justice issues, largely focused on the over-incarceration of people of color. But then about four years ago, you created My Brother's Keeper. So tell me a little bit about My Brother's Keeper, what it does, and why you founded it. Okay, uh, I just want to back up a little bit. People Against Injustice was actually created by a woman, Sally Jockin, and I believe Emma Jones has something to do with it. I found out about them and was a part uh, at a um, rebellious lawyer at Yale, and I found out about the organization. I immediately was gravitated toward it, and I stayed with them almost 14 years. And is it still around? Um, Yes, um, to some capacity. Okay. uh, So... um, what happened after about 14 years, I started wanting to, you know, delve into more things than we were working on. You know, I don't want to be pushy trying to push the other people to do all the things I want to get involved in. I had a lot of energy, so I just created My Brother's Keeper, which um, I thought that was the appropriate name for me because that's how I feel. And that that's what has driven me to do the work that I do. And what does My Brother's Keeper do? Primarily... Um, Educate the community, uh, especially people who are impacted by and negatively by social policy and trying to motivate them to be the in the forefront of change, as opposed to myself getting stories and going to the legislators and trying to change policy. I'm trying to motivate the people who are truly impacted to be out there um, trying to make that change happen. Is it a membership based organization or do you do organizing and just encourage people to get involved? Um. It started out uh, membership, but um, people don't stay that engaged uh, for a long period of time like I have been doing. So what it ended up being is um, I do a lot of organizing around different issues. And then people are, you know, people plan with me. We have planning meetings, um, build coalitions to uh, come together on specific issues. And police uh, accountability and issues of policing is one of my brother's keepers. 
um, core issues around which you organize? Yes, um, definitely uh, policing issues. That's been an issue for as long as I can remember. So, um, you, um, you know, for a long time, I would say the issues of police brutality, uh, especially um, the violence and killings of African-American and Latino men were largely swept under the rug and only um, community members in poor communities of color uh, were most aware of just the, the volume and the depth of the brutality um, targeted against particularly young men of color. The rest of America just seemed to mostly ignore it or, or act as though it was something that really didn't involve them or uh, there was some justification for the killings of black and brown men, uh, including people here in New Haven. But social media and technology, and it seems like that combined with advocacy by young people, especially young black people, have has really changed that around. And so I think for the first time, we're seeing even public opinion polls showing that when people, Americans have been confronted with images of black and Latino men being senselessly killed or beat up by the police. Uh, now people are starting to realize that 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 is a problem. Um, do you think things have changed as a result? I know now there's more awareness, more Americans are understanding that it is a problem, that um, the way that police, um, that law enforcement officers police black communities and brown communities is not the way that they do white communities. But do you think that the the Black Lives Matter movement and the videos are starting to change things or not? Um, I think people are starting to talk about it more. Um, people are in less denial because we have the cameras. But I'm not really sure if that's enough to change because a lot of times you'll see videos of black people being abused. And then those people who are in denial will say, well, we didn't see the whole video or right. we don't know what happened or, you know, they have to make these splits you know, decisions, they come up with all kind of excuses why uh, black people are being abused. So um, the only thing that's really that I really feel is going to make a difference is when we change the culture of policing around the nation. And so if people are not talking about changing the system and the culture of policing, then they're not really doing much of anything. We're just spitting in the wind. If we talk about just they need more training and that's going to do it alone. Or maybe we need a different police chief or, mm -hmm. or, you know, if people are looking at those kind of things, I don't think it's really going to change. It's really going to take a whole mindset and, and heart change. So talk to me about um, what you mean when I, when you say a culture of policing, give me some specific examples. Well, if you look at the history of policing in the first place, it began uh, trying to control the enslaved Africans. And so much hasn't changed from that yet. I mean, there's still always, Policies are always about controlling uh, African people, uh, tracking them down and and caging them like animals. Mm -hmm. And that that hasn't changed one bit. So what we do in America, a lot of times we say things have changed and what we did is just evolved into something else. Like slavery involved into the black codes and Jim Crow laws, Jim Crow laws uh, evolved until the war on drugs. And then we have the war on drugs going to the war on on gun violence. We There's always an excuse to keep corralling black people and putting them in cages. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about policing in New Haven. Um, you know, you hear a lot uh, of 
um, talk about New Haven, the city of New Haven being the first one to embrace and advance this model of community policing. Um, bef- and that was under the uh, chief pastor. Before he came along, um, there was a, a posse of police called the Beatdown Posse. Yes. Um, who used to target black communities. I believe it was New Hallville and Dixwell, and they would look for young black people to beat up and then chief pastor came in and he completely radicalized the police department that, um, when they had the beat down crew that was around the time that i became public enemy number one in new haven why was that because i started seeing how kids would walk down the street and the next thing you know here comes the van with the police um jumping out and you know putting the kids up against the wall searching them and and they it was just like a regular and it just started to anger me. My kids were little at the time, but it started to anger me that that they could do this and continue to do this. Like our kids couldn't be free to just walk down the street and not be bothered. And so I started making complaints. And then after that, then they started doing things like, you know, they stopped my uh, they stopped me one time because I was like in front of my house and they said, well, you're not up against the curb. And so that was blocking traffic. They actually, in the hill area of New Haven, I, I had owned a home on the corner, and they gave me a ticket one day because they said it was debris around the tree. You know, little stupid stuff like that. Harassment. But that's how they continually harassed me because I complained, and other people in the community were afraid to complain. So they, you know, they targeted me. Do you think things really change in the chief store? I think they changed a lot. I really do. How I so? think... Um, Community policing for him, you could actually see police officers uh, on the streets playing basketball with the kids, talking to the kids. Even Chief Pastor would talk to the kids and try to direct them from standing in the corners, getting in trouble, things like that. So for me, it it truly did make a difference. And he had this policy where if something was going on, I felt I could go to him and complain about it. It was the officers who retaliated, but at least Chief Pastor was willing to hear what I thought the problems were in the community. Hmm. And so Chief Pastor stepped down, and since uh, his departure, there have been a string of police chiefs, some of whom have tried to follow Pastor's model, and some of whom have publicly paid lip service to it, but only because, um, you know, the mayor at the time embraced this concept of, of community policing, and it was a thing of pride that the people of New Haven could say, how, you know, we created community policing, and look at the way that this community has changed. Um, do, you, do you think that now, um, and we'll talk a little bit about the um, Chief Esserman, but do you think um, community policing still exists? Uh, not, not under the way uh, Pastor had it, because okay. under the way... Under Pasteur, a lot of African-Americans, men and women, uh, and other females became uh, part of the police force. So you actually had a lot of people in our community who were doing the policing, people that we engaged with. I mean, officers that I used to hang out with. So and then it seems like after he left, that kind of fell apart little by little to the point that. Um, if you look at the last few years of, of uh, police officers, the academies, they're almost 70 or 80 percent uh, white people come, that, that live outside New Haven into New Haven. So if you want to call a community policing, 
you can't really do that because community police and under pasture was how do we get people in the community to police their own community? And the idea also was that the uh, police really needed to know who, who were yes, the people living who, in, the, the people. in the neighborhoods yeah. and, and you have like an understanding them. of the community and, and that you had some level of respect mm-hmm. and dignity director towards yeah. the residents of the city. And you also had an investment in the city because it's the city where you live. It's not a place where you just come in for five 10 hours and then leave and go home. So it was a lot of investment. So the last police chief, Chief Esserman, um, seemed to uh, be a fierce supporter of um, community policing. Um, And yet there was a side of him that uh, seemed to alienate a lot of people uh, in the community, especially communities of color. And you were one of the advocates who... um, Probably was one of the first ones to step out and say, um, you know, he he needs to go. He's not being respectful of people in the community. Um, tell us a little bit. And you, you also articulated in public that you didn't think that he was doing right by the community. So tell us a little bit about the evolution and, and it, why it was that you felt it essential to step up and speak out against his leadership. Um, as always, I, when I see something wrong, I'm going to say something about it. And um, when I first met him and, and I actually went to um, the day that they celebrated him becoming chief and I was actually excited. And, you know, I went up to him and I introduced myself. And then um, like maybe about a couple of weeks later, uh, he asked me to uh, go out to breakfast or lunch or something. He wanted to get to know me. And so we did. But what I found when I talked to him from the very beginning, I was talking about people that I really had a lot of pride in. And he seemed to knock everybody down that I had pride in. And so I'm sitting there looking at him saying, like, uh, is this how you're going to impress me as as being for our community? And so I was just a little reluctant about um, embracing him from the start. Mm -hmm. But I gave it I gave it a shot. Um, there were several times that I um, asked the community to come out and get to know the chief and for him to, um, you know, introduce himself to the community. And what I actually found was there was a pattern. He'd either uh, come late or and spend a lot of time talking about himself. And then there was no time for the community to engage with him or Almost every time his phone rang, he there was some emergency. He had to leave in the middle of a meeting, and so that when I noticed that that was always happening, I just stopped inviting him because I felt that he really didn't feel that uh, comfortable with our community. And so what I did, um, I started asking Assistant Chief. Then um, I asked um, Assistant Chief uh, Campbell to, mm-hmm. to come to the meetings, and they were they went much more smoothly. Uh, you're listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community policing, broadcast at 103.5 FM and live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Um, I want to switch a little bit because we've been talking um, about the political, but for you, this isn't just political. This is deeply personal. Uh, and you have had um, loved ones um, uh, in the past uh, very involved in the criminal justice system and and some have had very negative encounters with police officers and the most recent being your daughter, Holly Tucker. And as I understand it, she had a really horrible encounter with the New Haven police uh, recently. Tell us a little bit about what happened. Um, It was September 10th. 
um, she was with her fiance and they were um, on their way home. They were not too far from home, as a matter of fact. And um, in what neighborhood was this? Uh, Fox and Boulevard. Okay. And the police were directing traffic because I guess there's a lot of drag racing going on there. So they were directing traffic uh, out of, I think it was McDonald's or Burger King, one of those places. And so after they, the last car left out, they, were, they went and they were standing on the side talking. And so my daughter just proceeded through. So she went on and she went into the store. And um, I think it's when she was coming out, she noticed that a police officer was taking a picture of her plate. And then she asked her, you know, why are you taking a picture of my plate? And she said, well, because I want you to know the next time I tell you to stop, you're supposed to stop. She said, but you didn't tell me to stop. And so one thing led to another. And um, the, the police officer said at the time, I'm going to give you a verbal now. And Meaning I guess, a verbal warning? Yes. Okay. About the uh, stop. And then the, the, the long story short, um, my daughter had an attitude. She had an attitude. She's um, the verbal one. She asked for a license, registration, all that stuff. And she gave her, you know, she complied and gave her all that stuff. Then um, she went and she was talking to another officer who was with her, which was. Um, this is your daughter or the a police officer? The police officer okay. went and talked to another officer. And when he came, when she came back from talking to the other officer, she had a whole different change of mind. She was very, uh, according to my daughter, was very uh, belligerent. And, and I don't know how it got from, you know, this belligerent attitude to getting her dragged out the car. I know the officer uh, took his hand and pushed her window down. So your daughter got back in the car and then right. this police officer came back. Right. Okay. And I don't, I, like I said, I don't know all the details, but I, I remember her saying that um, the male police officer took his hand and pushed her window down, forced it down. And um, he reached in and grabbed her and then took her out of her seatbelt. And then the other officer, a uh, female, grabbed her other arm and they dragged her out of the car. And she had a dress on, so she was completely humiliated because they dragged her out of the car and then um, put her up against the car. And then the the male officer, um, I guess it's uh, with your feet where he flipped her with his feet Mm -hmm. and made her hit the ground. Wow. And Um, then they cuffed her. And, and, and she said, even when she was in the police car, the officer said, um, the female officer said, "Um, I'm just going to give you a ticket. Okay. And then the next thing she knows she was going to jail. And what was she charged with? How, let me ask you first. How much? So she was put in the back of the police car, and then she was taken to the uh, to headquarters, right? And she said that w- they never said you're under arrest or anything, because she said that they at the the officer said, "Well, you can take your pocketbook." She said, "Why am I taking my pocketbook? I thought you said it was just going to be a ticket." Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, she gave her pocketbook to her boyfriend, and then. Um, Next thing I know, she was going to jail. I was in California at the time. She called me from jail to tell me that she had got arrested. And, and how, they put her under $25,000 bail, somebody with no record or anything. So she's so never she, had any, rec- no criminal record, no, no history with the police. No. How much time did she spend in jail? Uh, spent that night in jail. And what was she charged with? I know it was resisting and um, probably breach of the peace stuff like that. I know it was little stuff. But they, you know, they they accumulate. They say bring in so many charges that that's how they uh, account for giving that high bond. And bail was twenty five thousand dollars. Right, right. And so, um, thirty five days later, 
uh, she still had the bruises on her arms. So tell me about the the physical um, injuries that she sustained, because I know I've heard you talk in the past about um, both the physical injuries and the mental trauma that she suffered. Well, both of her arms are badly bruised and she's a dark skinned woman. So both her arms are badly bruised um, to the point she, when her doctor was concerned that she might have clots because after oh. a couple of weeks, you know, it was still a bruise in there. But he checked it out and she was okay. And um, 35 days later, uh, her arms were still badly bruised. One is starting to heal up now. I think uh, you can just about barely see the scar, but you can still see some scar on one of the other arms. And tell us about the mental suffering that, that she's been experiencing, because you talked a little bit about how she's been feeling since then. Mentally, she is a wreck. Um, she, had, she started out with a lot of crying spells. Uh, her, my granddaughter called me one day. I was in a meeting. She said, could you please call mommy and talk to her? Because she keeps crying. And so, um, you know, I told my daughter, I think she needs to probably get some help, some therapy. And I said, you know, you can't let this thing just take you down. And, you know, she's in school. It's her last semester. And so she's trying to cope with school and then keep getting flashbacks from being traumatized like that. So she finally went to therapy. What school is she at? Uh, Gateway. She's getting what? A degree in what? In teaching. So it's like the last thing she needs to, to have. So I can imagine that, I mean, I have an 11 year old son and if, if he had an encounter with a, a police officer like that, I would be beside myself. And then I would wonder whether I would be better as an advocate because this, that's my blood or I would fall apart um, because of the hurt. You see your child, your loved one hurt. So tell us about, I know you've been advocating on her behalf and you've had a bunch of doors closed. So tell us after that, what you've done to try to to seek some um, redress for your daughter and whether the charges are still are still pending and what it is that you're trying to resolve. Uh, the charges are still pending. Uh, when she went to court the first time uh, before she even got to court, before the court opened, they had already, you know, given her a uh, postponement. So she went the second time, the same thing before court even opens, you know, they told her another postponement. So she goes back uh, on November 1st. Okay. Um, we've had, I've reached out. I started with the chief, letting him know what happened. Um, and then, you know, he, he said he advised me that I, that he really couldn't get involved, that you had to go right to internal affairs. He said, I can't get involved because if I have to discipline the officers, I don't want anybody saying, you know, that, you know, we were colluding together or something like that. That was his excuse not to do anything. But he's the chief of police. Yeah, and that's where I'm kind of disappointed because I was really supporting him uh, becoming chief before this happened. And I, I feel like this was a test for me to uh, to see what really happens when, when uh, stuff hits the fan. Mm-hmm. And so um, he's pretty much stayed out of it. I, so I went to the mayor. Um, I asked for an appointment. Of course, she makes you wait three weeks. So I waited my three weeks to date up the, the appointment. She uh, had her secretary call me and they canceled. I've called several times after that. Um, No one, you know, will call me back. And so finally I got some uh, people that were standing in support with me and my daughter who agreed to go down there and we were just going to storm her office. We were going to make her listen to us. So we did. About 20 of us went down there. We refused to leave the office. 
because they they uh, they told us at first she wasn't even there. We didn't believe that. And then when I seen her bodyguard, I knew she's not going to the bathroom without the bodyguard. So I said, she's here. We're not leaving until we see her. This The community who put her in office wants to talk to her. So finally, after about 15 minutes, she came out. And, and you know, you know, and we just told her what happened. And I and I asked her, I said, as a mother, how would you feel if that happened to your daughter? And she said, well, I would be upset. I said, well, you're better than me because I'm beyond upset. I said, because um, this happened over a year ago with a 15 year old. The same thing. Male officers think they can slam our kids in the ground. And um, you stood there and, and agreed to exonerate him within a day of an uh, internal investigation. So I think if something had happened to that officer, my daughter would have never had that happen to her. So that, that, that's where I'm so disappointed in the mayor. So I went to the public safety meeting and we wanted to, uh, put, you know, talk to them, put it on the agenda, even though it wasn't on the agenda. But this is important. We need to somebody needs to hear us. Mm-hmm. And of course, they weren't going to do it. They were just going to continue their plan, which was to talk about financing a dog. And so, you know, that upset me. And so that we ended up crashing that meeting. Um, we went to a management meeting over in Fox and Boulevard and the chief was there. And <laughs> before the meeting was over, he slipped out. So I guess he didn't have to be confronted with us again. So we went to internal affairs and this was like after the 35th day. And uh, the guy that uh, came to the door, he said, um, I asked him, I said, can you tell me what's going on in my daughter's case? He said, we're doing our job. I so said, you filed a complaint with oh, internal yeah, the, affairs? The complaint was done okay. a while ago. Matter of fact, um, which I left out, my daughter and the beginning of the interaction with the police, she had filmed it. And so she had a video, but then they you know, took the phone from her, so she couldn't video the entire thing. But she did have some video. And Why the, did they take the phone away from her? Um, I, I don't know. I guess as they dragging her out the car, I don't know. So anyway, uh, we went to, so we asked the chief, um, why is it taking so long for the police to do something? He said, well, you know, it's internal affairs and, you know, and we told him we had a video. He said, well, can we get the video? Because without the video, well, that's what he was saying. Like without the video, they can't do anything. So reluctantly, we gave up the video, which I, I, you know, I told internal affairs, I really didn't want to give it. I said, I'm going to be honest. I don't trust you that if you get the video, now you're going to put a story together according to fit the video. So I didn't want to give it up, but you know, they said they might have to close the case without it. So we just went ahead and gave it to them. Okay. So now you have the video 35 days later. And I said, uh, I asked him, I said, Oh, I had my daughter ask did they uh, interview the officers yet. 35 days later, they haven't even interviewed the officer. So now I'm really upset. So how you tell me you're doing your job. You have three officers involved September 10th. Neither one of them have have uh, been questioned yet. So how are you doing your job? Oh, well, your daughter needs to come in and give us a statement, too. I said, why does my daughter have to come in and give you a statement? She's given you a video. She's written up a civilian complaint. Why does all the emphasis have to be on my daughter has to do everything? And so um, we got a little disruptive, Mm -hmm. of course. (laughs) And so they had to call in somebody from Internal Affairs to come in and talk to us. And so what she did, it was Miss um, Kane. She spoke to us and she said, and she uh, guaranteed that she was going to um, get statements from the police, all three police by last week. Now, 
we haven't talked to her yet since then. But that's what's supposed to be happening. And now. what do you demand? What do you want the police to do? Uh, first of all, admit that they were wrong, which they never seem to do that. But at least admit that you were wrong and apologize to my daughter for what you did. And I want to see them get disciplined, not a slap on the wrist, not two days off. And, you know, you come back to work and make it all up in overtime. I want to see some real discipline because un- until they do that, other officers will continue to do what they do and get away with it. Like I said to the mayor, if if you had a came down on the first officer who, who slammed that 15 year old, mm-hmm. my daughter would never have had to go through this. Right. So you can't continue to exonerate them and allow them to be in our community behave in any way they want to, knowing that they have not only the police chief, but you also have the mayor and the union who are going to back you up. And you're not giving up on your efforts. So tell us a little bit about what you got planned on Friday. (laughs) Well, Friday, we we have our topic is uh, justice um, delayed, justice denied, because that's what we feel. I mean, now it's going on 40 days, still nothing's happened. And so uh, we're just feeling like, we're just being de- we're being denied justice. And I tried to tell the chief and the mayor that prolonging this, maybe thinking that maybe we'll calm down or something. No, it's not working. I'm getting more angry every day that passes. Mm-hmm. And especially when when I can still see the bruise on my daughter's arm and knowing that they have done nothing yet. I all I to tell the truth, I, I expect that they're going to try to find a way to get out of it like they always do. But that's just going to be the first step for me, because. I will not rest. If I have to go to the Department of Justice, I will not rest until my daughter gets justice. And so on Friday at five o'clock, um, you're asking supporters, community supporters, and those who believe in justice to convene outside of the New Haven Police Department? Yes, at five o'clock um, to, just to stand with us, um, demanding that we uh, get justice. And, and, and I want to give a shout out to some people like Serge, um, who have been with us from day one. Um, and search stands for? Oh, um, standing up for racial justice. Mm-hmm. And um, I, 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 can't, I can never say the organization name, but John Lugo. Unida Latina Nación. Yeah. <laughs> I can never say that. <laughs> Ula. I, yes, Ula. I have to really give a shout out to them because, I mean, those two, pe- those two groups have been with us from day one. They have never left our side. I mean, there were some people from our community who came out the first day, but that was the last day they came out. These two groups have been with us through every step. So I really, really appreciate them. Uh, You're listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio, broadcast at 103.5 FM and live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. So to the listening audience, um, I'm hoping that folks who are um, lovers of social justice can block their calendars on Friday, starting at three, because we want to do some advocacy in New Haven. So at five o'clock, we want to make sure that people go to the New Haven Police Department. And at three o'clock, we're going to start our advocacy at the New Haven Green. So at three o'clock, we're going to uh, do some advocacy around Calhoun College. We're going to talk about in a couple of minutes and then. After that rally ends, we will make our way to the New Haven Police Department to support Barbara and her daughter. Uh, Barbara, you talked earlier about the culture of policing, and um, I came across an interview that you did um, in March of this year, written by a woman by the name of Sarah Harris. And when you talked about what was really important to policing, you said it's a lot about compassion 
people talk a lot about with the police, um, oh, we need to train more. You can't train and you can't legislate compassion. And a lot of this stuff is because a lot of people lack compassion for those who don't look like them or don't live near them. Do you think that's what happened with your daughter? Yes, I do. And I think it happens across this nation. And I want to um, close your section by um, really uh, celebrating who you are and what makes you um, the incredible person that you are. And I want to quote again from this incredible article. You said, as far back as I can remember, I've always fought for what I thought was right. And so I can't imagine just not doing anything about anything and just accepting all of this injustice in our lives and not doing anything. People ask me, what keeps you going? And I say, without hope, we have nothing. That's what you see in New Haven, just so much hopelessness. Without that, you don't have anything. I'm holding on to hope that things do change if we just keep fighting hard enough and long enough. So I want to thank you and celebrate you as one of New Haven's um, big champions. I want to urge everybody who believes in social justice to show up on Friday afternoon outside of the police department. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you. And we're going to keep Barbara here because now we're going to switch from policing to um, another issue that is um, uh, that has people up in arms in the city of New Haven, and that is Calhoun College. And I want to welcome an additional guest to our studio, um, Patricia Kane who is um, a badass city lawyer and who represented Corey Menifee. Patricia, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Kika. So we want to talk a little bit about Calhoun College and the agitation that's been going on around trying to push the university to do the right thing and change the name. And by way of background, I just want to quickly mention um, who Calhoun was and and, uh, how Yale came uh, to honor him. Before you do that, can I just... Go ahead. You got the mic. Acknowledge Barbara received an award two weeks ago from Between the Lines. Well-deserved. Yes. uh, And Ula also received a social justice award. And, you know, I've seen the comments in in the paper, Barbara, the the really horrible things people say. And it's, it's plain that they don't understand the Constitution and what you're fighting for and you know, you're only looking for a society where things are done properly and everyone gets due respect. That's it. And to see people try to slime you from time to time for doing the right thing is discouraging. But then you see these awards and you say, yeah, the people that are paying attention and get it mm-hmm. know who deserves this recognition. So I salute you. You really deserve that award and every award that comes your way. Thank you. And and just so you know that the people who take the time to write that slime are wasting their time because I don't even see it. I see it and I don't <laughs> let it pass. So Good there you I don't either. I, I refuse to engage with trolls in any way, shape or form. Uh, so by way of background, in 1933, Yale University named one of its colleges Calhoun College after John C. Calhoun, who was a former senator from South Carolina he was vice president of the United States, and he was an alum of the university. And um, Calhoun is known as one of the, if not the biggest champions of slavery in this country. He was also a proud slave owner. And this is what he once said about black people. He said that ours is the government of a white race. The fatal error of placing those colored races on, on, an, uh, on an equality with a white race has destroyed the social arrangement which formed the basis of this society. 
Calhoun College has been a shrine to John Calhoun. Um, and until last summer, if you went into um, the college, you would see uh, a bunch of very offensive, offensive uh, glass pane windows, including one of a minstrel playing the banjo and one of, uh, we mentioned it earlier, of, um, slaves happily picking cotton. And for decades now, students, especially students of color, uh, who have had to live in that in that college and been surrounded by images. I should also I should also mention there was once an image of Calhoun with a slave kneeling at his feet in shackles, and that was not removed until 1992. And they actually didn't remove the entire um, uh, stained glass window. What they did was they removed the piece of the slave kneeling at Calhoun's feet and then put it back up at at Calhoun College. So. For decades, students of color in particular have just been really traumatized by this idea that they have to live in an environment that that is a shrine to white supremacy and they have to look at images that really are propaganda and a celebration of white supremacy um, and slavery. And uh, so if you look at some of the history from the very um from the very evening that there was an event um, celebrating the naming of Calhoun College, there was one man who read a poem in opposition uh, to Calhoun College. And then, um, especially in the 1970s, uh, some of the uh, more radical student protesters who were involved with the Black uh, Panther Party really started turning up the volume around uh, Calhoun College and taking on the university around issues of race. And then in 1992... Um, there was uh, sustained efforts to change the or remove or change the window, the stained glass window that was done. Uh, and, you know, for decades now, black students have said, you know, these images are offensive. It's really traumatic being in this college that celebrates a slave, um, a champion of slavery, a white supremacist. And um, the university has done nothing about it. And then uh, in, in 2015, students started agitating again, and they were really focused on issues of what they perceived to be anti-blackness and white supremacy at the university. And one of the issues that they uh, rallied around was Calhoun College, and their demands were very specific. And starting in 2000, the, the switch in advocacy was went from those images are offensive to um, those images are offensive the naming of the college is offensive and you have to change the name. And the latest iteration that we've seen was in 2015, like I said earlier, and students really started getting on board and doing some incredible advocacy uh, at the university. And one of their demands was that Calhoun College be renamed and the uh, university president, Peter Salovey, um, began this process to engage students and faculty and alumni to get their views um, on whether or not Calhoun College should be renamed. And most folks in the in the um, Yale community and folks in the community of New Haven who were um, following uh, uh, the process expected that since he was so openly um, engaging people in this process that, that it would culminate in an announcement that the name Calhoun College would be permanently removed and those Im offensive images would be permanently removed. And instead, during the study period when students were busy studying for exams, he announced that the Yale Corporation 
had chosen to keep the name Calhoun College. And so students were disgusted and there was some student advocacy and then students went home for the summer and I think Yale University, probably the officials breathed a sigh of relief and thought, okay, it's done, it's over. And then along comes a courageous uh, African-American employee at Calhoun College who engaged in um, a very brave act. Uh, Patricia, you were his lawyer, so tell us what Corey Menefee did and why. Well, uh, Corey works in the dining halls, and a Yale alum at a reunion pointed out to him the nature of these stained glass windows. They're rather small. They're the size of a tablet, and Corey's a little bit nearsighted. He hadn't really absorbed what the images were about, and the alum said, how can you go to work every day looking at this? And so he took a closer look, and when he saw it, he was appalled. And over a period of weeks, as he's told me about it, um, it, it just grated on him. To the, the day he decided to act, it was basically, um, he was thinking of the pain that people suffered during slavery, Far from this image of the happy slaves with baskets of cotton standing in a cotton field, uh, it was a time of horrors. It's not mentioned that Calhoun sired a whole line of black Calhouns, Lena Horn being one of them. How did he sire the black Calhouns? Well, it was rape. We all know it was rape. But uh, when people talk about the historical value of a name, they omit the crimes that were committed by these historical figures. Anyhow, on that day, Corey, not really planning it, but something in him just bubbled up where he hopped up on a table, grabbed a broomstick, and simply smashed the glass. And that was it. He stepped down. Uh, He was prepared for whatever would follow. He didn't expect it to escalate the way it did into losing his job and being charged with the felony. But um, he took total responsibility for what he did, and the community responded. But tell us what happened. He actually was arrested and handcuffed. At first, he was told he would merely be ticketed, that it was in the nature of a little vandalism. Students destroy things at Yale all the time, and that's how it's handled. But then a different officer came on the scene. It always seems, Barbara, those second people that come Mm -hmm. on the scene escalate things. And decided uh, he would be arrested. So Corey held out his hands and said, okay, I'm ready to go. And, oh, well, not so fast. Then there must have been conversations with the higher-ups because I'm told that nobody is arrested at Yale unless approval at the very top level comes. Anyhow, they wanted to put him in handcuffs to and take him through the dining hall to humiliate him in front of everyone there. And a union rep, I think it was Taisha Walker, talked the officer out of doing that. So Corey was taken to the police car and then booked at New Haven Police Headquarters. And was charged with what? And was charged with uh, disorderly conduct, uh, breach of the peace, and um, destruction of property. And uh, this came as a total shock to him. Because he had just told initially, oh, yeah, okay, we'll figure out how much it costs. And, and he thought, well, yeah, so I'll have to pay for it. But D- Yale decided to play hardball with him. And then there was a, a woman whose name um, shall remain uh, confidential, 
Uh, she reached out to me and she reached out to Paul Bass of the Independent and she told us what happened. And so um, Paul and I, and uh, both in very different ways, became active. I started, um, I reached out to some of my colleagues, including the amazing Unidad Latina en Acción. Barbara, like you said, they always have their pick finger on every social justice issue in this community. I reached out to Ula, I reached out to Barbara, I reached out to some other um, social justice advocates in the community. And by the uh, the afternoon that Paul published the story, by that evening, a significant mem- uh, broad spectrum of people in the community were outraged and, and thought that this was a grave injustice. And so Barbara, you were involved from the very beginning. Tell us what it is about this case that that just made you immediately. I mean, you are involved in so many issues. You always have people coming up to you and asking for help. Um, but you immediately responded and you were active on this issue from the very first day. So tell us what it is about this particular incident that triggered you. Um, just the, the fact that, um, well, one of the, the big issues for me is that I could understand and relate to what he was feeling. And I was outraged that that he felt the need to apologize. That really bothered me because I I thought now how they obviously they can't understand what he was feeling around this whole issue, and that's why they seen it as some criminal act. But it you have to be able to put yourself in his shoes to realize that I'm watching every day a reminder of what happened to my people, horrific stuff that happened to my people. And I have to look at it every single day and I'm not supposed to be upset by it. And, um, uh, the, uh, there was a broad, so from the very beginning, Barbara and others, um, got involved and the broad coalition had very simple demands. One of which was to drop the charges against, um, Corey, because I was going to say the, the, The other issue that was striking for me before I get to the next segment is the fact that not only was he arrested and charged with a felony, but it seemed like this was an effort on behalf of the university to incarcerate yet another African-American in this community. Somebody who um, up until then had had no disciplinary records at the university. Did that trigger you as well? Um, That always triggered me because, like I said, it's like this is what America is about finding an, uh, an excuse to put a felony on every African-American that they can. And with that felony comes so many things that so many, um, you know, collateral consequences that it, it pretty much destroys your life. I looked at the fact that here's a person with a degree. Why is he even working in the kitchen? But this is what I also noticed about Yale, that the, um, their employees, many of their employees, African-American and Latino people are you know, doing the menial work. Certainly the other service employees. Right, right. They're not at the managerial level right, in right. the same proportion. Even though they may, yeah. may be very qualified to do so. Yeah. I want to um, just quote, uh, talking about how Corey felt. There was an interview that Corey did, and he was asked why it was that he did what he did. And he said, I don't know, something inside me said, you know, that thing has to come down. It was a picture that just, you know, as soon as you look at it, it hurts. Uh, I think it's very similar to what you just mentioned. Um, so, Patricia, you are contacted by an amazing New Haven um, uh, personality to represent Corey. 
And uh, Wendy Hamilton called and said, you have to read this article. It was the article by David Yaffe Bellamy. And it was like, wow, when I read that, I thought, what is going on here? And I asked Wendy, who's, you know, very much an activist and a philanthropist, do you, do you know if he has a lawyer? She said, I have no idea. I said, well, do you think I should go over to court? He was scheduled to go to court the next day. She said, it won't hurt. So I met him outside the public defender's office. And what was particularly cruel about this attempt to prosecute him, I've had it absolutely confirmed. Yale did tell him he would not be prosecuted and extracted a general release from him, meaning things like maybe a complaint for a hostile work environment. You know, I was just rereading what constitutes a hostile work environment. It's a very subjective test, but if you are a person of um, either certain gender, identification, race, it's, it's whatever the impact is on the environment, and images are part of the environment. He would have had a claim for a hostile work environment. Everyone who worked there would have had that claim. But So he gave a general release because that's what the union advised him to do. Didn't get one back. Left him completely exposed. So when I stepped into the case, I thought, wow, I don't think we can get his job back, but maybe we can at least get rid of the charges because it was so clear they overcharged him. But it was really the community support. I have no doubt in my mind, had people not been there, had the media not been there, had not people voiced, including people on the Yale campus and Yale faculty, Yale alumni from around the world, it took all that for Yale to step back. And they didn't do it even in a very straightforward way, but the outcome was at least accomplished for Corey. Now, when I listen to you talk about how and I agree with you how it took the media, the people coming out and everybody surrounding him to support him to get a different outcome. I think about how this situation with my daughter is so different, yeah. how there's been a complete media blackout. Yes. I mean, no media has covered any of these things we've done and we've done some very newsworthy things. Yeah. But they have covered absolutely nothing. Why do you and think so, that is? I told my daughter, it's telling in itself that they're trying to keep this out of the media. There's, now, who has the you. power to do it? Yeah. I don't know. But I've never seen anything like it where no incidents of anything that, that we've done have been covered by the media. I, she probably has a civil rights complaint for how she's been treated by this police department. And if you have enough stories, you even have uh, more of an action and while Obama's still in office, there's a chance maybe you can get some attention. But I have seen cases of domestic violence, and now I'm hearing one of, of civil rights. To me, this is a civil rights matter, um, where the police are not acting properly. They're not doing their job in the time allotted. They're dragging their feet, and that always raises suspicions. It has to. And I totally agree with you, Barbara. If you stop the smaller abuses by the police and you get rid of those people at the start, then you're not dealing with a dead person, an unarmed dead person of color on the street another day. And you you know, you've got to advocate right at the start. And you know, when you talk about that, it brings back this case that has always, it's never left me the case of um, the elder in um, the elderly building on Howard Avenue. His name was Mac Lucky. I've never gotten past uh, feeling that there was something about the case with him 
the officer, they have a residential uh, plan where the officer can live rent free in, in these housing projects. And this officer, a young officer who hadn't been on the force two years, um, had moved in on the 4th of September. And by the 8th of September, he had already killed an elder in the elevator. He claimed the elder pulled a knife on him. They found a knife, of course, um, by his hand. First they said it was in his hand. Then they said it was near his hand. Uh, There was no forensic evidence, no fingerprints or anything on it. But the man is dead and dead men can't talk. Mm -hmm. So we can't wait until something like that happens again, because that's one thing police are quick to say, oh, we're not Ferguson. No, we've killed some people and they had to come up with policies to to stop that because there was a time when New Haven police Mm -hmm. officers were killing quite a few people and they just killed a couple in the last few months. I can tell you years ago, police were covering up for officers who were committing domestic violence, beating up their own wives. They would call those women and say, he just got off duty. We've got a lot of police officers who've seen military service. Mm. They have untreated PTSD. They have issues of rage, uncontrollable violence, drug abuse, alcoholism, and it is known within the department. And it's covered up. You're listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio, broadcast at 103.5 FM and live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. So I want to switch back um, to uh, Calhoun and Mm -hmm. the efforts. And so um, the community rallied around Mr. Menifee and we had two demands. Actually, we had three demands. The first was that the university asked the prosecutor to drop the charges. The second was that Yale rehire Mr. Menifee. And the third was that uh, Yale University renamed Calhoun. Well, you got and two out of three. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm happy to report that um, uh, by the end of the summer, Mr. Menifee had been rehired. And all of us were in court when the prosecutor formally announced that they were withdrawing the charges. And it was a real victory for the community and I think an example of, of what we can do when um, well-meaning people with a social conscience step out of the, their normal, the, normal, um, the normalcy of their daily lives um, to speak up for what's just and what's right. And unfortunately for the universi- university, the Menifee um, case really in many ways um, showed us that you know, for a long time, let me let me just say, honestly, many of us thought that the Calhoun issue was a student issue. You know, we looked at the at the advocacy from a distance. We admired what mm. the students were doing. We we cheered their um, their advocacy efforts on. But we felt like, well, that's, you know, internal. let the students. An yeah, internal. it's an internal matter. But Corey Menifee's case really expose the mm-hmm. just how broad it is and how toxic that environment is, not just for students, and, but also for uh, the workers there, especially the workers of color. And as a result now, there's been the creation of this Change the Name Coalition, uh, and it, it, the core group of people who are part of the Change the Name Coalition were the core group of people who advocated for Corey and this Change the Name Coalition has now expanded to about 35 organizations that are supporting the efforts to pressure Yale to um, rename Calhoun College, including a rally that's happening on Friday uh, at 3 o'clock starting at the New Haven Green. So, Barbara, tell us a little bit about about the rally. Um, well, this is, it, I guess it's uh, after every single week 
we would have um, a rally outside of um, Calhoun College. Led by Ula once again. Yes, again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they were committed to do that every single week. And so now, you know, it got to a point that we said, okay, we need to up the ante because obviously Yale is not taking us serious because, you know, they could have changed the name by now and they haven't. And that's one of the things that kind of bothers me about them because they they put out there that they're trying to have a different image in our community. Well, this would be one of the great ways to show that you really, truly mean that. So what is behind them uh, stalling on changing that name? And there is a committee called the Renaming Committee that's been tasked with coming up with principles about how the university should consider um, the the names given to colleges and other significant uh, spaces of the university. What they've been very specific about is that they're not going to focus on particular names, which uh, many think is just a big cop out. And, you know, there's some frustration among some activists that, Yale cares more about process than about doing the Oh, that's about typical doing the right of academicians, thing. though. They love to have committees to study things mm-hmm. and report. And so let me talk a little bit about the rally. I know we're, we're, we have just a couple of minutes. So um, the Change the Name Coalition uh, is has really joined the, the student-led and initiated efforts. We're really supporting uh, the advocacy that the students have led for many years. We are uh, joining hands with them. We are... Um, fully supportive of their efforts. And what's fascinating about this coalition is that it's made up of community and student leaders, faith-based leaders, nonprofit organizations, and student organizations. And still, um, there's a lot of uh, focus and attention to Corey Menefee, and it seems like he continues to inspire people. Um, Patricia, I know that you've been a part of the coalition, um, and you plan to be there on Friday, even though you have a boot on your leg from a fractured <laughs> From a fracture, a temporary impediment. You plan to be there in the green. So folks who are listening, please make sure that you are at the green on Friday at three o'clock when we're going to have a rally and we're going to march in support of Yale University changing the name. But um, Patricia, tell us why you're still involved. Well, first, I want to tell you, Corey would love to be there. He absolutely supports the effort, but um, he works the hours I, I think if he can make it earlier before things start, he will show up in support. Um, and what was the question? Why you're involved? I mean, oh. you, you secure justice for your client. But there's justice has to be for everyone, not just for one person at a time. That's, you know, that takes too long. Um, there are many needs in New Haven, and Yale is the biggest employer in town. And what Yale does impacts the people who live here. We know um, it, it either is going to set a standard and be a shining example, or it's going to be the object of more protest because it does, the administration, I want to distinguish the administration from the students and the faculty and the alums. The administration seems to lack um, a, a, an empathy or a compassion, as Barbara would would call it. They don't seem to be able to respond on a gut level and just do the right thing. I assure you, I approach them on that basis with Corey's matter, not just to look for a legal outcome, but to look for a really good resolution that would set an example. It didn't happen. So now they have another opportunity. Um, I think it's going to take ongoing pressure to persuade the small group 
that makes these decisions. And I think it, it the um, leaders and the administrators who are in a position to, to make decisions about Calhoun, including the Yale Corporation, should be mindful of the fact that Yale is situated in a community whose residents are largely people of color. Many people like myself are descendants of slaves. And to have the university so willfully and intentionally celebrate a white supremacist and a proponent of slavery in our city is particularly disgusting. And I think that is what has brought many people to the table, just the complete um, disrespect that the university has shown both uh, students of color, but also city residents and uh, those who believe in social justice around Calhoun. And it's clear from my uh, involvement with the Change the Name Coalition that this coalition is only going to grow and that the advocacy efforts are going to escalate. Um, and we're not going to give up until uh, Calhoun College is, uh, is no longer in existence in our city uh, this brings us to the end of the show. You're listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH. But before we go, I have two questions for our fabulous panelists, Patricia Kane and Barbara Fair. Thank you both for not just being here, but for being the fierce, badass women advocates nasty and leaders women. that you are. Yes, I think Donald Trump would say that you're both a nasty woman, and I think you should consider yeah, that a War- badge of honor. Elizabeth Warren says we can celebrate that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you both. I have two quick questions. Um, what is your favorite New Haven neighborhood? I think I answered that before Fairhaven. Let me ask you again. What about you, Barbara? Mine is Hill, where I was born and raised. And if you could pick a superhero power, what would it be? What are the different powers? <laughs> X-ray vision, flying, reading people's I, minds. We're both wonder women. You could Let's have just bionic arms or bionic legs or bionic <laughs> eyes. Is there anything you would aspire to if you were a superhero, some um, kind of power? To be able to read people's minds, I think I'd, I'd like that. It would help a lot, yeah, huh? Yeah, sometimes I just look at people and I wonder what the heck is going on in their mind. What about you? Well, maybe I'll take x-ray vision this time and just melt the name Calhoun. Oh, yeah. Just have it drip down and mm. be eradicated. So folks who are out there listening to us, I want to thank you for joining us on Kika's Corner. I want to thank these nasty women who are here with us, Barbara Fair and Patricia Kane. And please, all of you out there who are listening to us, please join us on Friday. We're calling Friday afternoon, then afternoon of social justice in New Haven. Meet with us on the green at three o'clock and at five o'clock meet us outside of the New Haven Police Department. Until next week, when I'm back, here's wishing you justice, solidarity and many days of sunshine. Thank you.